Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. This week I have a couple of questions for you which have come in from members of the congregation and uh, well they seem to me uh, pretty interesting and uh, thought-provoking and uh, at least uh, one of them to raise the kinds of questions that many people have asked at various times uh, both to me personally uh, the other pastors here at All Saints, but also just generally down through the ages, the second question in particular. But uh, the first question um, is a little bit of a left field one, came from a young lady at All Saints. And she asked just last Sunday, why is it that the Ark of the Covenant and its associated, associated bits and pieces, the, uh, the poles used to carry it, why is it that they're made of acacia wood covered with gold? Now, of course, uh, this young lady has latched on quite rightly to the observation that all of the details of Scripture are significant in all kinds of different ways. And so what a thoughtful question to ask. And so we chatted for a little bit and I said, well, why do you think the Ark of the Covenant was covered with gold? And well, she has a pretty good answer for that. You know, it's precious, it's weighty, uh, it's shiny. Uh, as it happens, it doesn't corrode, so it would stay shiny for a long time. And so its, it's beauty and its luster would uh, reflect in some way the lasting and abiding glory and goodness of God. Uh, so that's why uh, the kinds of reasons, at least some of the reasons why the Ark of the Covenant and the poles and so on and various other things in the, the Holy of Holies were made of gold. But why was the Ark of the Covenant in particular covered was it, it was covered with gold, but it's made of acacia wood. And I just scratched my head and I had no idea, frankly, no idea at all. And what I'm going to say it might be only a partial answer to that, having thought about it for a couple of days. Uh, there might be other answers, uh, additional features that are worth mentioning. And so I'll let you um, get back to me if you come up with anything else. But there are a couple of things that may be going on. Uh, the first is uh, really more to do with the natural properties and the uh, ways in which the acacia tree grows. It turns out that the acacia tree is one of not many trees that grows in the wilderness of Sinai and so it's one of few uh, options available to the Israelites as they're thinking about constructing the Ark of the Covenant and it would have been particularly useful for them because acacia would be extremely hard, quite dense, very stiff and very strong and it's also very insect resistant. It's high in natural tannins, which means that it wouldn't go moldy, it wouldn't rot easily, uh, it wouldn't get chewed up by termites or whatever other creepy crawly things might have found their way into the, um, the camp of Israel at various times. And so just from a practical standpoint, it's very easy to see why the people of Israel would have uh, been encouraged to use it in the construction of something that needed to last. It's actually stronger and stiffer than hickory or oak, which are two of the strongest woods kind of out there. There are stronger and stiffer woods, but not many. Uh, so that gives you a sense of what it is that the Israelites thought they were doing. As the Lord spoke to them about how to construct the ark, he didn't say, you know, just go down to the nearest Home Depot or wherever you would find some kind of cheap brushwood in the wilderness. Uh, he said, no, go and find something that's hard, that's going to last a long time, because this ark of the covenant and the poles used to carry it even, well, they need to be strong to carry the weight of all the gold that the ark itself and the mercy seat on top of it are made from. So there's uh, one thought. Of course, the other thing you want to do when you're answering a question like this, and I've got my computer in front of me here to help me with this, uh, you want to try and just check where else these things occur in the Bible. 
in order to see whether there's any significance in the development of the story, so to speak, told by the occurrences of Acacia Wood. So uh, let me have a quick look here. I'm just going to pull up my um, clever little Bible software. And if I search for Acacia, here we are, Acacia, just to remind me, yeah, you've got a whole bunch of occurrences in Exodus 25, 26, 27, 30, 35, 36, 37, and one in Deuteronomy 10, Exodus 38 as well. Those are all to do with the uh, building of the ark and so on. And there's another one in Isaiah 41, which I'll come to in a second. So basically it occurs in about, how many instances? 28 verses, uh, 28 occurrences in the Old Testament. The word um, uh, shita, which means acacia, and 27 of them are to do with the building of the ark of the covenant or, or something associated with that in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But there's a couple of other times it occurs. One, you'll spot, I'll say in a moment, you spot it if you search in English, but there's another bunch of occurrences that you only spot if you look at the original Hebrew language in which the Old Testament was written. The word shitar, meaning acacia or acacia tree, is the singular form of the plural shitim. And the word shitim, of course, is very well known as the place where in Numbers 25 the people of Israel committed adultery and idolatry with the women of Moab. And you can go read that fairly unpleasant and... Um, by the end of it, quite bloody narrative in Numbers 25. And so what you've got, as you are looking through the scriptures and you're trying to kind of trace the story of the Bible, what, what you could do, and I, what I encourage you to do, is to pick up the threads formed by individual images, including this image of the acacia wood and the acacia tree or the shitar and the shitim and trace the story as it develops and so the first cluster of occurrences 27 of them uh well the, the major cluster have to do with the building of the ark in fact there's 26 of those that might even be significant come to that in a second so 26 to do with the building of the ark in exodus then you've got one in deuteronomy then you've got a bunch of them to do with the place of idolatry and immorality and adultery and then in Isaiah 41 which is the final occurrence of the singular shita meaning acacia it's in the promise of the renewed land that appears briefly uh, in the middle of Isaiah 41 so here's how it goes uh, the Lord promises that when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water, the dry lands springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I'll set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may understand, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So actually, now if you think about the story of this concrete image of the acacia, the shitar and uh, the shitim, the related plural noun, uh, throughout the Bible, of course, the place shitim is so called because probably there are lots of shitar trees there. The way the story goes is like this. The Lord used the acacia wood to construct or to instruct the Israels to construct a place for his holiness and his worship to be focused and for his presence to be found. But the people of Israel turned aside from him, Numbers 25, at the place of the 
acacias at Shittim to worship idols. And yet, nonetheless, the Lord in his grace and compassion, Isaiah 41, rescued them and replanted those acacia trees in the wilderness as a place for the lost and the poor who would be humble and seek him to find him. So can you see what's happening here? This is an innocent question from this young lady uh, after church and after forum on Sunday. Uh, I do a little bit of digging and you discover yet another retelling of the gospel uh, through the scriptures. The acacia is the, the place where the Lord draws near to his people it's the place where the people turn away from their God, and it's the place, Isaiah 41, when the Lord brings them back to him. It's interesting, I don't even know whether this is significant, but the first 26 occurrences that I mentioned in Exodus 25 through 38, 38.6, uh, uh, well, you know, if you exchange the Hebrew letters of the alphabet for their corresponding numbers, uh, as uh, that's how the Hebrews counted. Uh, you, they didn't use separate number sy system to denote one, two, three, four, five. They used the letters of the alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and then you get all the way to nine, ten, and then you go 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. Well, if you do that with the name the Lord, which we sometimes pronounce Yahweh, it probably should be pronounced slightly differently to that, but Y-H-W-H, yod Hey vav Hey, you add up the number the numerical value of the letters of the Lord, you get to, guess what, 26, which is the number of times the acacia appears before it all goes wrong in Numbers 25. So there you are, young... Lung, <laughs> can't get my words out today. There you are, young lady. A very thoughtful question that got me thinking and uh, uncovers another wonderful way in which the Lord tells a story of his presence and his grace to his people. So that's the first question I had this week. Here's the second question which came in uh, by email again from another young lady at church a few days ago uh, let me just read uh, an extract from this email and then we'll jump into it and I think this one may be uh, relevant in some other ways to a variety of different people different kind of questions uh, this one concerns the doctrine of baptism let me read this good afternoon pastor in one of my classes at school we're going through Augustine's confessions today we came to book four we were discussing friendship Yet one point stuck out to me that we just sort of glossed over. I wanted to ask you about it. In book four, Augustine tells how his friend was baptized when they thought he was going to die. And how afterward, when he seemed to recover for a time, he seemed to have a complete change of disposition towards baptism and faith. This caused Augustine to believe that his friend had really accepted Christ after being baptized. Pardon me. My Baptist friends don't really know what to do with this passage. And I'm unsure <laughs> what to think of it myself. Uh, I know there's some significance or power in baptism. I also understand that baptism in itself doesn't save anyone. What's going on here? Um, that's a paraphrase, by the way, but that's roughly the question. Okay, so somebody's been reading Augustine's Confessions. It's going to be interesting. Uh, let me read you a section from uh, Augustine's Confessions from which this question arises, and then we'll um, jump into it. And uh, this will actually help us to unpack a few aspects of baptism that you've uh, well, you've heard me talk about baptism a number of times before, probably, if you're a regular at All Saints, but this will help us to view it from a different angle and may shed some helpful light on it. So, uh, I'm going to read this chunk from Augustine's Confessions. This is in Book 4, beginning Section 7. I've got um, Gary Will's translation. This one is on page 66, but you've probably got your own one of the gazillions of different translations of the Confessions. Anyway, here goes. This is Augustine speaking. 
When at this time I began to teach in the town where I was born, I formed a friendship with one very dear to me because of our shared interests. We were the same age, each in the prime of our young manhood, and we had known each other since boyhood when we went to school together and were playmates. But he was not my friend at that time, nor even later was ours a true friendship. For that you must meld friends together in a closeness sealed by their love for you. That is for God. Augustine is speaking to God in the second person, you. A love suffusing our hearts by the Holy Spirit sent upon us. Yet our tie was a sweet one, warmed by the views we shared, etc., etc. Okay, so situation, Augustine grows up with this young man, he's a friend, uh, they have a lot in common, they grew up together, they played together when they were kids, but uh, they didn't share faith in Christ. His friend was not a believer, and Augustine, of course, has his own confusions about his uh, upbringing and everything else. Then, next section, uh, sometime later, quote, as he was convulsed with fever, clearly very ill, lying insensible, so unconscious, in a lethal sweat and given up for lost, he was baptised without knowing it. That didn't bother me. I was sure he would prefer what he had received from me when conscious, presumably their friendship, over what was done to his unconscious body, baptism. But I could not have been more wrong. When he revived and was strong enough, I spoke to him as soon as I could, and I could as soon as he could, since I never left his side and we were entirely open with each other, I made fun of his baptism, expecting him to laugh along with me at what had been done to him when he was incapable of knowing or feeling anything. Right, but so you see what's happening. So Augustine is, is with him uh, when he's ill, he becomes ill. During his illness, he's baptised without knowing it. Uh, Augustine clearly thinks this is uh, somewhat laughable. Uh, and so when his friend wakes up and Augustine is with him the whole time so he can talk as soon as he wakes up uh, he makes fun of this fact uh, and he expects his friend to think it's really funny too uh, but he had been told of his baptism and he recoiled from me as from a foe with a stunning new independence he warned me never to talk like that again if I wished to remain his friend I was taken aback and disoriented, but I suppressed my feelings till he should be restored to his full faculties, confident that I could bend him to my will at that time. But he escaped my mad designs and found safety in you, a fact that would comfort me later. In a few days, while I was not present, my f the fevers returned and he died. Okay, so you see what happens. This young man, not a believer, on his deathbed, baptised, recovers augustine makes fun of this baptism but this young man is struck by it the baptism that he received well while unconscious uh, and in a serious fever and so on and it seems to be if i'm reading the the narrative correctly that in consequence of that experience his friend turns to the lord before he subsequently becomes ill again and dies and then augustine is comforted by the fact that he's uh, trusted in christ having been baptized okay so there's a bunch of questions this raises. And the first one is the one that this young lady highlights, uh, perhaps reading this with some Baptist friends. And this does provide a bit of a uh, curveball, shall we say, to um, those who espouse a Baptist theology within which uh, baptism should not be administered except on profession of faith by somebody who's an adult or at least old enough to make a believable profession of faith for themselves. So 
Uh, that's the view roughly of our Baptist friends. Well, that's certainly not the view that Augustine held. Now, I wouldn't want to argue for paedobaptism just on the basis that Augustine was a paedobaptist, but at the very least, Augustine is a fairly uh, heavy-hitting uh, witness from the early days of the church. And so it's easy to understand how Baptist friends wouldn't find that very easy to handle. Now, in fairness, I'd want to say that there are some aspects of Augustine's doctrine of baptism that, as Reformed Protestants, we might have some difficulty with as well. And so... Uh, all of us, as we're kind of wading through Augustine's voluminous writings on that and other subjects, will kind of have time to scratch our heads. And none of us is committed to the view that Augustine or any of the early church fathers got everything right. Um, but yeah, that's the first thing that's worth pointing out. Uh, if, if there were some Baptists who wanted to say that always in the early days of the church, baptism was only administered on profession of faith, then clearly, well, that's a mistake because Augustine's confessions contain one example of it being done differently. Uh, so that's the first thought. Um, the second thing is it might be worth saying a word or two about this issue of uh, baptism for people when they're ill, unconscious, or perhaps when they're very, very young. Sometimes this question arises in tragic, tragic circumstances when uh, a child might be born uh, to Christian parents and who in the normal course of events would be baptised you know, within the first few weeks of uh, his or her birth, which would be wonderful, but sometimes children are born with very serious illnesses, which mean they're not likely to live long enough and it wouldn't be wise for them even to leave the hospital. So they're unlikely to be able to be baptised in church. And sometimes the question arises, should such children be baptised in the hospital, like an emergency baptism? Now, regarding adult converts, or, or at least, let's say, regarding adults who are approaching... Uh, death, I, I wouldn't favour the administration of baptism to somebody who's an adult, uh, even uh, approaching death if they'd not been baptised, without some kind of expression of faith from them. It just doesn't seem to be appropriate. Um, of course, we all know of situations in which uh, people who are old and infirm and frail uh, perhaps make some kind of expression of faith in Christ perhaps in the very final hours or minutes of their life uh, and well if it's possible for them to be baptized in those circumstances I wouldn't oppose it but I wouldn't want anybody to be worried if it weren't possible the key thing here is that though baptism is a, uh, a sacrament and is very significant I'll come to that in a few minutes it doesn't have the kind of significance which means that the person is lost without it um, that's actually one of the differences from many contemporary common Roman Catholic understandings of, of baptism. Uh, we, we don't want to uh, ascribe that kind of significance to baptism. So to put most simply, if you had an elderly friend or relative who professed faith in Christ in their final hours or minutes of life, and praise God if they did, and weren't baptised, well, please don't worry about them. Of course, you'd be grieving for them, but uh, they'll be safe with Christ because they're saved through faith in him. Uh, I'd say the same, actually, for infants in those tragic, tragic situations where sometimes uh, a young child is born with such serious uh, illnesses or uh, injuries or something else, which means their life is likely to be very short. Uh, scripture teaches that covenant children 
you die in infancy are saved in Christ. Um, that's something we've talked about before. I won't go into all the details again. I'm happy to if that will be helpful. Just give me a shout and we can talk about it either in the podcast or in some other context. And that salvation is not imperiled by their not receiving baptism. This is actually something that Calvin spoke about um, in the medieval uh, church and later in Calvin's day. Uh, childbirth was a far more dangerous procedure than it is now. And it wasn't so rare for uh, the mother or for the child to uh, suffer injury or uh, life-threatening uh, peril or even death during childbirth. And Calvin opposed emergency baptisms because he said, look, if, you, if the child is ill, call a doctor. And if you have, if you have chance to get to church then of course we'll baptize your child Calvin would have been very strongly in favor of that but we shouldn't think of baptism as having this kind of magical necessity that means the child is imperiled without it and to be honest it's, it's as much as anything else an issue of priorities uh, the priority I would think would be to um, get the medical care and to, to try and treat the child and make the child as comfortable as possible during those final hours and to do so with the confidence that if the child is lost the child dies pardon me the child is not lost now of course uh, if you've been in this situation before and uh, somebody whom you know has been in this situation before and the child has been baptized then that's fine that's great it's not that there's something wrong that's been done there i'm just saying that as a matter of pastoral wisdom i wouldn't consider it a priority and i wouldn't want to encourage us to think that it's necessary i hope that's clear and doesn't um, get too tangled up again with all of these kind of matters. Don't hesitate to get in touch if you, uh, if it raises any questions. But just another couple of questions, just as we finish off, where are we time-wise? We've got a few more minutes. Um, what are we to make of the particular situation in uh, Augustine's Confessions? And what does that tell us about what, how we should understand baptism positively? How, what kind of relationship does it bear to the saving grace that God showers upon us. Well, again, turning to Calvin, and this is a bit of a Calvin day, isn't it? But I got Calvin's Institutes in front of me and I thought I'd flick to the relevant sections. Calvin highlights specifically in his Institutes, book four, chapter 17, uh, section, sorry, chapter 15, section 17, baptism is not invalidated by the delay of repentance. And this is something that Calvin would have been very familiar with, especially with the late medieval church and all its goings on. There'll be many people who've been baptized as infants in the medieval Catholic Church who came to faith in Christ, not as they were being raised in the medieval Catholic Church, but as 45 or 50 or 60 year old adults in Protestant Reformed churches. So you've got baptism and then a delay and then repentance five, six decades later. What are you supposed to make of that? And Calvin says, well, the baptism is still baptism. We'll come to what that means it is in a minute. It's still baptism, even though the repentance is delayed. And I want to read uh, what he says, because it highlights something, uh, well, a few things that are kind of significant about uh, what baptism is and does. Uh, let me read just a couple of sections um, from here. Where are we going to go from? Let's go from about 10 lines down. Um, we therefore confess that for that time, Baptism benefited us not at all, inasmuch as the promise offered us in it, without which baptism is nothing, lay neglected. What's he saying there? He's saying at that time, immediately after baptism, 
Baptism offers this promise and the promise is given in baptism to a child, but because there's no faith in the child and the child's family and the child isn't being raised in the faith, the promise is not taken up. The promise is still there. The child's been baptized, but because it's not a believing family, we have no reason to think there's faith in the young child, unlike when there is a believing family. Um, and so the promise is not being picked up. He continues, now, when by God's grace we begin to repent, we accuse our blindness and hardness of heart, we who were for so long ungrateful towards his great goodness. But we believe that the promise itself did not vanish. Rather, we consider that God through baptism promises us forgiveness of sins and he will doubtless fulfill his promise for all believers. This promise was offered to us in baptism. Therefore, let us embrace it by faith. So you can see what he's saying. He's saying something very significant about the objective character of baptism. Baptism is this promise given by God to us. And even in the case of a situation where a child whose parents are confused medieval Catholics who don't believe in Christ and the child is raised in that same context and then only later comes to faith, even then the promise remains valid. It's just that it's only embraced later uh, and embraced with a sense of self-reproach we accuse ourselves having neglected that promise for so long but we thank god if that happens to us that well we had the promise and then there was a delay of 50 years and then we trusted in christ and turned to him and the promise is not invalidated by the delay of repentance anyone who finally comes to believe is receiving the benefits of the promise given in baptism so he says the promise was offered us in baptism therefore let us embrace it by faith okay so that's uh, the, uh, perhaps a way of parsing what happened to Augustine's friend, uh, except instead of a delay of five decades or ten years, it was a delay of a few days. God graciously promised him something in baptism when he was unconscious, and I would want to say that baptism was unwisely administered, yet baptism unwisely administered can still be graciously administered from God's perspective, and in this case, clearly it had that impact on the young man who turned to Christ in faith and repentance and before he subsequently tragically died of what looks like a related fever and so one day we'll see him and meet Augustine's friend and be able to share with him our stories as we hear his but that then raises the final question that this uh, uh, emailer asked which is more to do with just more generally what kind of efficacy does baptism have See, it's very easy to say what baptism doesn't do baptism doesn't work in the way that our Roman Catholic friends would say. It's not um, magic in the water and it, it uh, guarantees salvation to all who are uh, baptized. And it's But neither is it merely a testimony of our faith towards God. God is actually doing something objective towards us in baptism. And the question is, well, what is he doing then? And Calvin has a fascinating way of uh, elucidating this using the image of a seal. And I want to um, read a couple of sections from the same chapter of Augustine's, uh, Augustine, Calvin's Institutes, book four, chapter 15, just to highlight this. Uh, and uh, we'll start with a couple of sentences from uh, section three. Now, from the de definition I've set forth, we understand that a sacrament is never without a preceding promise, but is joined to it as a sort of appendix with the purpose of confirming and sealing the promise itself. 
So he's um, defined uh, baptism uh, in the previous section. He says it's a, a testimony of divine grace towards us confirmed by an outward sign with mutual attestation of our piety towards him. So it's a, God has promised something, this outward sign to confirm it. And so what he then says is, so when you've got a sacrament like baptism, there's always something that precedes, there's always a promise that precedes it. And this calls for our attention to Calvin's doctrine of the relationship between the word of God, which contains the promise of life through Christ, the promise of the gospel, and the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You've got the word, which is like the promise of God's grace, and then a seal, which is an outward attestation of the reality of that promise. And that's the illustration I want to press with you just for a moment, because it's absolutely fascinating how Calvin develops this idea of a seal. You're familiar with what a seal is, of course. A seal, we're not talking about the sort of flappy creature that um, eats fish and lives in the sea and at the um, South Pole. South Pole? South Pole. Um, uh, or maybe somewhere else. I can't remember. Anyway, you can... Um, figure that out and look it up. I mean, there were seals off the coast of Scotland, in fact, so they must be somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Anyway, the seal he's talking about is the kind of seal that you get on documents to attest to their validity. And look how Calvin presses this illustration in uh, section five of this chapter. The seals which are attached to government documents and other public acts are nothing taken by themselves, for they will be attached in vain if the parchment had nothing written on it. Just think about that for a second. If you've got an empty document and then it's sealed with the king's seal, well, it doesn't mean anything at all. That's like baptism without the promise of the gospel being heard. That's the situation that Calvin is addressing in the delay of repentance scenario, where somebody's been baptized, but they've not heard the word of Christ, the promise of the gospel. It's had, so there's no promise that they can be raised in or can hear to which the sacrament can attest. So the seal has the king's inscription on it, but it doesn't do anything. But what does the seal do if there are words on the document? This is the the thing that really cranks up the volume of on our reformed sacramental theology. Check this out. Yet, when added to the writing, they do not on that account fail to confirm and seal what is written. Now, I want you to think about that just for one second. Um, what that means is Calvin views the sacraments when they're rightly administered. So baptism in company with the word preached as being the thing on account of which you know these words are the words of the king. If you just had the document that spoke the promise of the gospel, you wouldn't know that it comes with the authority of the living God to you. But because you have this document that has the king's seal, then you can hold it up to the whole world and say, look what the king says. Imagine if the document illustration. The document bequeathed you a, a, a thousand acres of land in England or something. It came from the king. Well, if I just wrote a document and gave it to you and uh, signed Charles, uh, you'd have uh, no hesitation in just dismissing that because you say, well, it's not from Charles, the king. It doesn't have any authority. But if it had the king's seal on it, you should probably pay attention because the seal tells you that the words really mean what they say to you. Remember the seal of baptism is applied 
to you. And so when you're baptized, it's as though God is taking those words, writing your name at the top, addressing them to you and placing the seal of his authoritative witness at the bottom of the document. He continues, same sec no, next section in the same chapter. Uh, the sacraments, therefore, are exercises which make us more certain of the trustworthiness of God's word. You just think about what that means for a second. If you're baptized, which most, or not all of you, if not all of you are, and maybe some people listen to this who are not baptized, give me a call, love to talk with you. Um, when you receive the Lord's Supper, you're receiving something which, according to Calvin, should make you more certain of the trustworthiness of God's word, because you're having this encounter with the authoritative, divinely decreed sign that tells you that this word applies to you. How do you know it applies to you? Because it was you who got wet. It's you who's eating the bread. It's you who's eating the wine, who's drinking the wine. So can you see uh, the Calvinist and reformed doctrine of the sacraments is it simultaneously warns us against two errors. Baptism doesn't have the kind of uh, efficacy that our Roman Catholic friends ascribe to it. There's nothing in the bread or in the wine or in the water that conveys anything magically to us. And yet, at the same time, baptism has a breathtakingly weighty significance. It is like the seal or the signature at the bottom of a document which proves that it's authoritative and it's got your name at the top because it was applied to you. And so that's the confidence with which we should remember our baptisms and continue to eat at the Lord's table. The confidence that says, as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm feeling with greater certainty that these words of God's grace apply to me. So, thank you very much to the young lady who submitted this question. I love going back over this stuff again. I love reading Calvin and um, not read that thing in Augustine for a long time. And that was a trip down memory lane. Thank you for that. Uh, I hope that's been helpful to others of you as we're just wrestling with all this stuff uh, week in, week out, trying to deepen our understanding of our faith and this important issue of the sacraments. Um, I hope that's been uh, helpful to you all. I think that'll do for now. Uh, the Lord bless you. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Bye for now.